Um, I'm going to date myself right off the bat here this morning. I'm kind of embarrassed, but I couldn't help it. As I looked at this passage, I just couldn't help thinking about Gomer Pyle. Now, some of you young ones in this group will not even know who he is, so let me just tell you. Um, He was played by a man named Jim Neighbors, and um, he was just a good old country boy who had found himself in the USMC, the United States Marine Corps, and he really lived just to make his sergeant happy. But unfortunately, when he did these things that made him happy, he just really frustrated the heck out of the sergeant. But when he did something, he always wanted to come to the sergeant kind of, all oh, shucks, with that kind of an attitude. And he would say with big smile on his face, and he'd say, well, surprise, surprise, surprise. And the sergeant would just be dumbfounded, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you did that. But it was just a classic line, surprise, surprise, surprise. And as I read this text, Matthew 18, I thought, How perfect is that? That's this text because you see um, Peter, um, the people questioning Jesus, the things that we saw in here, they went thinking they knew the answer. They went thinking, I'm the smart one here. Let me just impress you, Jesus, seven times. That's how many you forgive. I mean, Peter was just, you know, he's just so out there. And he was just thinking he was going to get that attaboy and that pat on the back and I'll be darned if surprise, surprise, surprise. It is not what you think it is. And so that's what we're going to look at at today. Because, you know, when you go back, we ended Matthew 17 and what was happening at the time. I like to tie the two together. Um, Because only as the Bible was translated did we begin to put breaks in it and and set chapter titles so we wouldn't be just by it all. So there was not necessarily a break. And, And if you go back, where we had been at the end of 17 was Jesus was telling the disciples, what we've sung about this morning, about the cross. And he was beginning to prepare them. That shadow of the cross is beginning to fall over everything we study from here out till he does go to the cross. So he had just told them, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to die. It's going to be hard. You're going to be persecuted. And what do we get? But we get the opening lines with, um, well, so who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the greatest? And I'm, I'm like, they're just not getting it. Are you kidding me? So let's look at three things this morning. We had three surprises. Gomer would say, surprise, surprise, surprise. So we have three this morning um, that we're going to look at, three points. I think first we're going to be just surprised by grandeur. How does Christ define what is great, what is grand. We're going to be surprised by that. And the second thing we're going to be surprised by is reconciliation. And it's really a lot easier than we make it out to be. And then lastly, we're going to be surprised by forgiveness. And I think what we'll learn there is it is costlier than you ever thought it really was. So, um, so here we begin, chapter 18. And right off the bat, we've got the question about, well, who's going to be the greatest? You know, If you look at the other uh, Gospels, you'll find further uh, discussion about this. In Luke, you find that the the disciples were actually arguing over who was going to be. So they were so absorbed in their thing and their position. Where am I going to be? Where am I going to stack up on the org chart and all that? They're so enthralled with that. They didn't even hear Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. You If you take my name, we'll suffer in this world. They weren't even hearing that. They were just completely absorbed in my place, my position in the kingdom, because it's going to be, you're going to be the king. And what's the root of that problem? What's really underneath that? Pride. Just plain and simple, ugly, old, green-eyed, whatever, pride and envy. It's thinking more of ourselves than what we really are. 
and it's living for ourselves and not for others. And when you do that, it inevitably is going to lead you to conflict and dissension. It just is. Take a look at Philippians 2, and you'll see it. Humility, the opposite of pride, though, on the other hand, um, can lead you to two extremes, too, and neither of which is good. Um, there is the extreme of thinking less of yourself than you ought. And I think the perfect example of this is Moses. When God came to him and asked him to lead his people out, you know, I can't, not me, I can't talk, I can't. And so Moses was thinking less of himself than God thought of him, than God saw. And then there could be the thinking more of yourself than you really ought to. And I'd say go to Romans 12 for that, the very beginning, and you'll see a little bit of that. The, the, humble person in God's eye, God's definition of humility, is the one who doesn't deny that they have received gifts from God, special gifts from God. Um, what they do, they don't deny that, but instead they use them, whatever they are, not for their own personal glory, but for his glory. And that's what a truly humble person is, someone who recognizes God has equipped me in a certain way. And mine looks different than Kay's, looks different than Sarah's. I wish I had Sarah's gift, but, you know, some of us didn't get to choose what we get. And so anyway, but look how she uses it to bring glory to God. That's humility. That's humility in action. So here the disciples are breathlessly awaiting. They've asked him, who's going to be greatest? And now they're there waiting just on the edge of their seat. Is it me? Is it me? Pick me, pick me. There they are waiting. And uh, what does Jesus do but present to them a child? Preposterous. Are you kidding me? And to really understand and grasp the weight of a child being brought into their midst, you have to understand how ancient cultures viewed children. And for those in this room that have traveled around the world, this is not hard to see. Go to Africa, go to India, go to China. Well, China actually venerates because of the law that's in place. But India, Africa, any, any nation in Africa, and you will see that, I mean, children just wander on their own aimlessly. You're just thinking, who? where's the parent here? Where, where are the grown-ups? And what's interesting is when you go back and look and study languages, you will find that many languages, when they use the word child, use the word child or children, and this was true in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, they use it. Most languages have a masculine or feminine attached to a noun. And when you come to the word child, there is no masculinity in, or femininity in many languages attached to it. It's neutered. So it's an it that not sound vaguely familiar to us today? Isn't that a whole lot of how our culture sees a fetus? It's not a boy or a girl. It's an it. And one can begin to do unspeakable things to someone when we don't assign them a value, a human value. And so that's why this was so outlandish. And I don't know, but I'm going to just... Take a real gamble here. I'm going to tell you that what I think happened here was Jesus didn't just go get some cute little boy. I think Jesus went and got a girl. Do you know why I think that? Because I think he picked the lowliest, the weakest, the most maligned and misunderstood because girls were nada, nothing, zero value. Until, of course, they reached the age of puberty when they could be used for something else. And so I think he sat among these men, high and mighty, figuring out who's going to be your right-hand man, a little girl. 
innocent, precious. I think that's who he said among them. And then he said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And in your groups, I hope you had the opportunity to talk about and look at what is, because what Christ was saying is you've got to become childlike. You can't go back to being a child, but you need to get into the kingdom of heaven. You need to be like a child. And I like charts. You guys know it. I love to put things on T-charts. So I did a little T-chart here um, of looking at childlikeness compared to childishness. Now, don't get confused because I'm going to talk you through this for just a minute. And when you think of childish, don't think of your six-year-old. Really, this is probably, those of you with a teenager in your house, you can go, oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. They think they're an adult and they're still a child. And that's where you get this because childlike children, little children, are innocent, innocent And yet, by the time they hit their teenage years, they're a little bit more cunning, a little bit more conniving in what they do and how they're kind of trying to get their way. A child, a little child, is very trusting. And yet, the older they become and the more that they know of the world, the more suspicious they are. A little child is dependent on you for everything, especially from the baby, baby stage. And yet, Man, think of a teenager. Are they not flexing their muscle and getting that driver's license? And I'm so independent. I'm, I can just go out and win the world. I don't need my mom and dad anymore. Oh, yes, that's so childish. Because they do. And then a little, little child just doesn't know any better than to tell the... They just tell it like it is. I mean, you're fat. Oh, I, you know, just out of the mouths of babes. I mean, don't they just say it? You know, that's just how kids, little kids are. But the older they get, the more we can kind of, I don't want to hurt her feelings. I mean, get any teenage girl. And I didn't tell them the truth about that because I didn't want to hurt my friend. I mean, you just get a bunch of teenage girls together and you will see what dishonest looks like. Because we've begun to shroud it in this and that. And we want them to think this or that about us. It's just, it's ugly. Um, and a little child is They just are other-centered. They're all about discovering their world. They're curious. They move to people. And the older you become, the more, check any teenager, about me. It all is. So what is Christ calling us to? To be like a child, not to be childish. That's like an ugly old teenager. But to be childlike. And so, um, here Jesus is, placing in the middle of us the weak, the vulnerable, the least significant human being to make a point. This is what heaven's going to be like. It's not going to be like Charles Darwin declared it would be in survival of the fittest with the strongest, the fastest, the loudest, the meanest, the angriest person rising to the top ahead of everyone. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes, no. Jesus was saying, no, that is not it. And then he goes on and he uses a great literary device, and it's called hyperbole. And hyperbole is great exaggeration to make a point, and he does several of them in this little blip right here. He talks about drowning someone by tying a millstone, and this was what they used. It's a huge stone that had a little center cut out of it. It went down around a bar, and then an animal was tied to it, and they walked around and around to, to, um, what's it called with the grain? Yeah. Whatever, grind the grain. That didn't sound right. So, yes, that, that was what the millstone was, huge, weighty thing. And what Jesus is saying, is it better to drown some? Just put a millstone and take them, not just where the deep end is, but way far out to sea. Okay, now there's just got to be a better way to drown someone than that. You see, he was going to the, he was exaggerating his point. And, of course, then he goes on later in this passage to exaggerate it again with cutting off your hand and your foot and 
gouging out your eye. He didn't mean that. He's not suggesting we maim ourselves. No, he's using it to make a point. So why was he doing this? He was doing this to show us the value, the value that children, those three feet and under, and those in our society who appear as children, they may not really be the one that's this tall. They may look just like you and me, but they may be children. And who am I talking about here? I think he was talking to us about the cripple, the chronically sick, the elderly, the infirm, the refugee, and especially women. Because in many cultures today, still, women are not seen as the same worth as a man. And so he's saying, yes, it would be better that you cut off a part of your body than that you treat a true little child or some of these who really are childlike in our culture and community. It'd be better for you to whack it off than to cause them to stumble. And again, I don't think he's suggesting we maim ourselves. What he's doing is saying, though, we do need to to maim a certain body part, and it's our heart. I think he's suggesting spiritual surgery. He's saying introspect. Look within yourself. This is individual. This is personal. How do you treat those people, those who can do nothing for you? How do you treat them? Do some surgery because if you're causing them to stumble, remove it. Cut it out. Just cut it out. Have you ever tried to break a bad habit, even one that's really not so what, the, what our, our society would say is that bad, just something that's not good for you. Like, for example, I love Dr. Pepper. I mean, I really love it. I grew up drinking Dr. Pepper. We only got it once a week, but I grew up loving it. I love the taste of that sugary delight. Oh, my goodness. But every day, it's not a good thing for you. It's not. And I knew this, and I had to come face-to-face with it, and I had to give it up. And you might as well have cut off my hand because I was like, Dr. Pepper, Dr. Pepper. I would walk past it in the grocery store and just, no. My heart was just pounding. I'm like, oh, I really want one. My head was hurting. I really wanted one. And um, it's hard. It's just like, it's just like giving up part of your body sometimes to take away a habit. Um, it could be a physical habit, like my Dr. Pepper habit, it could be attitudinal. What about a bad attitude? Maybe toward your husband, your children, your parents, your in-laws. It is really difficult when you have gotten into a habit of thinking poorly of someone to change that and see the best in them. Trust me, I know. And yet that is exactly what Jesus is doing. Drastic. Take a drastic measure. This is a serious offense I'm talking about here. It may not be one of the big ten sins, but this is a big deal to me. That's what Jesus is saying. So ultimately, who's great in his kingdom? Well, in this room, I think it's the woman, whoever you are out there, who builds one another up, who builds others up, not tears them down. You're the one who becomes a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. You're the one who lives for Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. It's real simple. Look to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humiliated mind count others as better than, better than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Seems so simple, doesn't it? But, oh. My goodness, that's hard to do. And that takes us to the second surprise, which is surprise by reconciliation. And it's a whole lot easier than you think. 
just culture today is categorized by dissension, division, um, believe it or not, even among Christian brothers and sisters. It's there. It's among us. Check any church split, and you'll find a lot of dissension and division. And uh, I love how this little poem states it. To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with the saints we know, oh, well, that is another story. And it is. Isn't that true? we got to live with saints among us. And, and it's not any more fun than it is with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ at all sometimes. And so we're either deliberately or unconsciously going to offend one another. It is going to happen. It happens in my family regularly, let alone my immediate family, let alone my church family. And so we got, have got to have a roadmap for how to do this. And thankfully, he gives it to us right here. Simple. Really love it. Because when others sin against us, there's a good four-step process. Real simple. Now, there's so much that can be said about this. As a matter of fact, a whole series was preached on this at our church. And um, so for those of you that don't go to Watermark, go to our website and go to Lord of the Rings series under messages. And you will find a whole series on this that says so much about it. Because we just can't say it all here today. There's just not time. Um, but the main thing is um, reconciliation. We are called to reconcile. And while the principle... If you look at Matthew 18, you will notice that 15 starts, if your brother sins against you. So this is speaking of within the church. And yet, um, we send teams over to Africa. We've got one there now. We've got one going on Friday. And what we teach when we're over there, many times we're teaching government leaders, um, some of whom are not believers, some of whom are Muslim imams. They don't believe the Bible, but we make no bones about the fact that we're going to use it as a great text. And they will agree that Jesus was a great prophet and has some great teachings. And we say, well, great, we're going to teach out of this because we think he ha gives you a perfect uh, blueprint that is full of wisdom. And it will go well with you if you follow these things, whether you believe all of it or have trusted him as your savior. If you live your life according to these principles, it will go well with you. And that's what's happening here. So even if you are at odds or in conflict with someone not a Christian, the same principles apply. That makes it easy. Great. So what are they? There are four. And, and again, before we get there, let me just say, what is it about conflict that I think we struggle with. Why do we think it's so hard? And I think that's because most of us, I'm going to include myself here, was not taught, taught how to handle conflict well. I never understood it. So I haven't been taught it. And um, I mistakenly then think if I avoid it, it'll just take care of itself. And all that does is exacerbate the problem. It might have been a little problem. And then the longer I read, it just grows bigger and bigger and and then it's the elephant in the room. And so, what are the four steps? Number one, keep it private from verse 15. you got to go directly and quickly to the person who's offended you. Speak to her alone. She may not even realize what she's done. I've had people come to me and say, I, I, I need to talk to you. And, and I was thinking, what? You know, and I had no clue I had offended them. And yet, it gave me the chance to say, I am so sorry for speaking those words without thinking, would you forgive me? And boom, immediately what was a blockage between us, we can immediately handle it. So, so go immediately. Go with the idea of winning your sister, not winning the argument, not winning the whatever it is that's between you, but winning the sister back. Um, you want to uh, go to them alone, and the reason is because 
What, what we as women, I think, are really, really prone to do is we're prone to start talking about it. I've got this, I'm, I'm sideways with my friend, and so I want to go tell my mom or my sister or my, my next-door neighbor that's a really good friend. I want to tell her what the deal is so that she can help me. Okay, well, then I've brought someone else in, and that just means they now have to be in the circle, and the circle's bigger, and it really becomes gossip, and, and then she may tell someone else, and so it just gets ugly real fast. Go alone, right to the person. Help that person in the same way you'd want someone to help you. And don't we, when we've done offended someone, don't we want them to let us know so we can own it? I do. I want to own it. And sometimes I just need to grow in that area. I mean, I, I really may have a blind spot, and I need to grow. I love how Galatians 1, 6 speaks about this, and I'm going to use that verse in just a moment. But in the verse, it uses the term to restore, and that's a medical term. And what that medical term means is literally to set a broken bone. So brothers, if a woman among you is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore her in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too not be tempted. So again, restoration. Second thing, ask for help from others, and that's in verse 16. If the person, the offender, has no desire to make things right, then what started like this has got to grow a little bit. And you want to bring in one or two people trusted individuals who look to God's word for direction and understanding in the problem that can help you see it more clearly. Because again, they may need to tell you something. You may have a part in it you didn't even see or don't know, or maybe they see it differently when you throw it all out on the table. So bring in, this is what we call widening the circle, and you want to start it in a little way. This also is pro- provides a way of protection when you go back again. This is, the, the world uses this. Um, lawyers use this all the time. It's called mediator. Uh, if you're going through some type of a, of a lawsuit, you go to mediation, and it's you bring in a third party who can hear and be objective. That's what this is. So the world kind of uses this too. That's what we're talking about. And then um, I love 1 Corinthians 13 here. Finally, brothers, mend your ways. Heed my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So again, we are encouraged to do this. Now that leads us to the third thing, and that's asking the church for help in verse 17. Uh, the point here is not to discipline the person. It's not about discipline, uh, disciplining them until they see their fault, um, but it is helping, again, to... Uh, Bring this to mind in a way that they could repent and restore. Keep using that restore, reconcile, put back together, something broken. I'm trying to mend it. That's the purpose here. So what began, again, as a private between between two people now includes four or five, and it may be evident to the church at large what is going on. And so that is why we need to bring it before others, particularly if we are talking between believers. I really think this point, number three, is between believers. You go to the church only when it is dissension between believers. If it is you and a non-believer, there's no reason because they don't heed the instruction of the church. Okay, so this is clearly bring the church in when it is between believers. And then lastly, um, keep on loving but perhaps at a distance. And what do I mean by that? I think that um, this last step involves there has been some breaking of fellowship or unity of the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 4 for this and see what that means. And when someone has refused, when someone keeps uh, continuing or refusing to turn their way, then we got to call a spade a spade. 
We've got to say, you know what? This, this we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to pretend like it doesn't ha- is not happening. We are going to call it what it is. But again, not to cast out, but to restore, to turn back around, to turn your heart towards home. That's the reason. That's what we're doing. This is, I think, the hardest part of the refusal, um, because what does it say? It goes on to say, and treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, and or in some translations as an unbeliever. And the beautiful thing about this, ladies, is how through all of Scripture are we employed to treat unbelievers? We are to love them, to keep loving them, to be salt and light to them, to keep wooing them, to keep calling them to faith. That's how we're supposed to treat them. So that's what you get to do. It's really, really easy. But you see that it is easy, but it's hard. Because if we speak the truth without any love, we get um, what many would call brutality. But if we speak love and no truth... We get hypocrisy. We just look the other way. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. I don't see that you're over there doing blah, 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 that you're drunk all the time. Blah, 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 blah. I don't see that you're blah, blah, blah. I don't see that you're living with that guy over there. I don't, I don't see it. I don't know. We don't do that. We, we say, yep, I can see there's a problem here. And let's deal with it because we love you and we want the best for you. That's the heart. And then ultimately, um, you know, what, what makes this so hard is that people who are offending many times when we go to them they're going to feel offended themselves it's a wound to the heart but you know what proverbs tell us tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend someone who really loves me would certainly better come to me rather than to share it with everyone else or whisper over on the side yeah i can't believe she's doing can you believe her did you see her at that party we don't do that we go right to them we say i know you may have no idea And this whole process actually starts back in Matthew earlier, something we didn't even touch on, and that's Matthew 7, which is get the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's. And again, no time to talk about it. Go to the Lord of the Rings. And then just know that what we're ultimately called to is to be peacemakers. And we've got a great um, chart. It's called the conflict model. We use this when we go to Africa, and I love it. Because you see, go to the bottom ends on either side of that, and you will see that when you break peace, it ends in death both sides no matter what if you are a peace faker pretending like something doesn't exist that does that ultimately takes uh, leads you to the place of taking your own life that's called suicide and it is death it's escaping and on the other side if you are breaking peace with someone if you're gonna make them do it your way that ultimately leads to death on the other side which is murder you literally take take them out I'm so, I'm just going to take you out. Both of them end in death, and both are against God's plan for us. What he calls us to is to make peace in the center, right there, to be an agent of reconciliation. And so that's what we need to remember here. And so where are you in your relationships today? Are you characterized as a peace breaker, a peace faker, or a peace maker? As a Christ follower, you, woman, sitting in the chair today, are called to be a peacemaker. Strive to learn to get equipped to be able to make peace. And that takes us to the last surprise by forgiveness. And it's more costly than you think. I love it. Last week in Tawny's teaching, she said, was talking about Peter, and here he is again. Peter, we just got to love Peter because he's just so much like us. Here he is um, 
thinking that he has exceeded, gone way above and beyond the call of duty. Because what was taught in that day, the rabbis taught that you should forgive someone who's offended you over and over, same thing, three times. That was really going, that was really doing it. So Peter going to Jesus is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the first. I'm going to be his right-hand man. I'm going to get the private seat with Jesus. I'm going to say seven, and I'll really just blow everyone away because I'm going to really exceed it. And that's what he does. He goes in. So how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And he's thinking Jesus is going to go, wow, Peter, you're so amazing. You went so far above and again. But that's not what happens. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Nope, Jesus doesn't do that because, you know, Peter was lacking humility in this case. But Jesus goes on and says, not seven, 70 times seven. What? He, Peter, didn't know that in this new kingdom Jesus was ushering in, love has no limit. It has no dimension. It can't be measured. Wow, that was probably shocking. Who could keep count of 70 offenses, let alone 490? Because if you multiply 7 times 70, you get 490. And that's the point. You can't keep count of it. You shouldn't keep count of it. Because when you do, you are not really forgiving. That's the point. Christian love, though, let's don't be confused, it's not blind. It recognizes a real wrong has been committed. And I hope you talked about this in your, these misconceptions or misapplications. Uh, Love, Christian love, again, it's not blind. You know, love, the the, uh, phileo kind, is blind. That's what they always say. Love is blind. But Christian love is not blind. It doesn't pretend that something hasn't happened. It doesn't look the other way and ignore it. It doesn't trust the offender again immediately, it says, well, we got a problem here and we're going to have to rebuild and I'm going to have to see some faithful action on your part. That's what it does. So, um, it ultimately though, if we do this with love, we attract our brother back. I love that just old wives tale about, man, it's a whole lot easier to attract flies with honey than it is with vinegar. That's the point here. It just, you got to love, and the love has to be an attraction so that people want to come to you for healing, not be repelled away from you and run the other direction. So three quick things about the man in the picture. Jesus tells a parable then, and what do we learn from it? Very quickly. Number one, the servant was a debtor. He was in debt, and it was something he could never repay in his lifetime. Because you see, it would, it would total in today's terms probably $10 million. There's no way. He was arrogant enough to say he thought he could repay it. But the fact is, I don't really think in this guy's scenario, I don't think he was sorry that he stole. I think he was sorry that he got caught. And so he just was like, sure, I can, you know, I'll repay it. He would never have been able in his lifetime. So his case was hopeless, except for one thing. He had a gracious and mighty king who said, I forgive you. The man, second thing we learned is he's a creditor. He also had someone who owed him something. The average worker a day earned a do- uh, uh, one penny a day, and he's, he's owed, this guy owes 100 pence, 100 pennies, so take him 100 days to pay it back. Minor in comparison to the thing that the other guy owned, which would be 10 million. And yet this servant was unwilling to forgive it. And so what did that make him? A prisoner. That's what it made him. Many people read this passage and they think that the king threw the guy in prison. Well, I mean, it does say that, but he didn't put him in prison. The guy imprisoned himself because the king had already freed him once. Do you see that? The king had already set him free from his debt. Now this guy gets 
thrown into prison, not by the king, but because of his what? Unforgiveness for what he had been forgiven. It's critical. The worst prison of all is the prison of an unforgiven heart. If we refuse to forgive others, we're only imprisoning ourselves and we're causing our own torment. Read Psalm 32 and see David's torment by his own sin and not confessing. It's torment. When you don't forgive, that's sin and it will lead you to be tormented. This man received forgiveness, but he never experienced it deep in his heart. So then, it's not enough, this passage is saying, to simply receive God's forgiveness or the forgiveness of others. We've got to experience it in such a way in our own heart that we give it freely. Not by counting, not by numbering, not by saying, okay, check, that's one more that I forgive you for. Okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's not what what it is. Um, we've got a team right now in Goma, Congo, and the team is um, a group of women that lead a ministry here called Shelter from the Storm. And these are women that have suf- been, uh, suffered, um, been abused in some way um, sexually as children, as adults, rape, um, incest, all those sorts of things. And they are taking this to Goma, wh- where the highest incident of abuse of women, physical abuse of women, the highest in the world is, and that's where they are. And I've already gotten a couple of incredible emails, one from a woman who said uh, after their first day at the end of the conference, uh, they emailed us and let us know that a woman had come forward and she said, I've got to confess that I um, have been plotting how to kill my rapist. And I now learn from here that I'm going to extend forgiveness. And there's a great film um, also that's out now called As We Forgive, and it's about the Rwandan genocide, and it's a beautiful story of people. Could you forgive someone who'd murdered your husband and your children? They did. They have. Um, Those people that perpetrated that violence, that genocide, were imprisoned for 10 years, but the government made a choice to release those people and send them back to their community. But they did some reconciliation training. And these stories are so moving. You cannot begin to fathom that you would have a relationship with your next-door neighbor who had murdered your family. But it's happening because they're applying these principles. Peter wanted Jesus to give him a measuring rod for forgiveness. But instead, Jesus told him, forgive unconditionally and forget the measuring rod. Forget it. So how about you today? Are you hurting are you harboring unforgiveness in your heart? Is there someone you need to forgive to relieve that burden for you? And then what step can you take today to initiate forgiveness for this individual? And who in your life could help you do it? I just encourage you not to wait another moment, but do it today. Make the plan today for how to go and offer forgiveness, whether it's been asked for from you or not. You will surprise 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 the person who has perpetrated this on you when you forgive them without asking let's pray father i just thank you that you tell us in your word here in ephesians to be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god forgave us and then in colossians you say to forbear against one another and if we've got a complaint to forgive each other just as you have forgiven us so that we should forgive And that we should above all put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let us be peacemakers today. In your name we pray. Amen.